0: If you would, open to the uh, text that Stephen read for us beginning the service, Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. I'll be reading it uh, as we go. I won't read it in its entirety again since Stephen just read it. A.W. Tozer once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When we think about God, what do we think about? Uh, if we think of Him as a mean ogre, it will certainly affect the way we live our lives. If we think about Him as revealed in Revelation four, it will certainly affect the way we respond to Him. Over the last couple services, um, there's always such good meat uh, brought to us. Um, I, I thought about what Pastor Mike was saying last Sunday morning before he departed about how we need to, you know, wage war and take up the armor. Uh, that God has provided for us, and certainly we must control our thoughts. We must take into consideration what we think about God's word and God Himself. The battle is always won or lost in the secret places of the heart before God, not just in the external world. Uh, as Pastor Mike was talking, uh, Pastor Mark was talking about last Sunday night, the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world, and we need to grasp the wisdom of God as revealed in Scripture. And even this morning, I couldn't help but think. We are sojourners, as Pastor Mark was teaching us. We're sojourners uh, together, uh, marching toward that heavenly city. And tonight, I want us to take a glimpse into that heavenly city as revealed in Revelation 4. Tonight, let us take time to look into the face of God as revealed in Scripture. Growing up in church, a second-generation Christian, many of the holy things of God, God Himself and God's Word, many times became too familiar to me. And as the old saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. And very routinely, I can just look at Scripture, understand a passage, think about God, talk to my children about God. But it's like I'm become callous to Him. And so, uh, thankfully, this past week, God once again allowed me to see His beautiful, marvelous face in Scripture awaken me again to the reality of who he is. And that's what we need time and time again is to look into his face, understand this is the God before whom we stand as a church, as individual believers. This is the God whom we follow and worship and let us not take him for granted. Let's not treat him too casually. Let's not let's not forget what it truly means to worship before the King of King and Lord of Lords. So that's why I ask you to join me tonight in beholding the face of God as revealed here in Revelation 4. So let's take a look at the passage. Revelation 4, verse 1, after these things. The first three words are an introduction or a transition. We have a transition from chapter 3 to chapter 4. And you might say, well, that makes sense. It's, uh, you know, a break of a chapter. But remember that the chapter breaks and verses were not inspired, they're not part of the original text. But there is, a, of course, a natural break here after these things. But the question then would be asked, what things... Was uh, John referring to here in Revelation 4, 1, after these things? Well, certainly were the things that were spoken about in chapters 1 through 3. Jesus, uh, the resurrected Christ, had come to reveal himself to John in chapter 1. Chapters 2 and 3 are messages to the seven churches there in Asia Minor. So when John says, after these things, he's saying, after chapters 1 through 3, what I've already written and what has been described and revealed to me by Christ After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. So we already answered the question, the first three words, after these things, what things? The things in chapters 1 through 3. But who spoke to him? He said, The first voice which I had heard. So in order to understand who this first voice was, we need to back up before chapters two and three, which was the message of the uh, seven churches of Asia Minor, and look at who spoke to him in chapter one, verse ten. So if you'll flip back from Revelation four, might not be too many pages, but to Revelation chapter one, verse ten. Beginning in Revelation, I'll actually start in verse nine, of chapter one. It says, "I John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance." which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John, in prison there in Patmos, sent to this uh, Roman exile island, he was there. And I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and Thyatira and to Cyrus and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. So this is the first voice that spoke to him that he referenced in Revelation 4.1. So who is this? Then I turned to see a voice that was speaking to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool. Like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. I read this passage to my son Luke and Judah uh, not too many nights ago, and Luke said, "Well, that's a scary guy." Eyes burning fire. I mean, this, this, this is intimidating. Yes, it certainly was. And you see John's response when, when the resurrected Christ is revealed to him. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. So this voice that has spoken to him is identifying himself now. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades Therefore write these things which you have seen, and the things which are, the things which will take place after these things. So going back to our text tonight, Revelation 4.1, he said, after these things, referring to what has already been written in chapters 1 through 3, and he said, and the first voice which I had heard spoke unto me, and he's going to receive an invitation up to the throne room of God, and the first voice was the resurrected Christ that was described for us in Revelation 1, uh, verses 9 through 19 there. And looking back... At chapter 1, verse 19, it says, The instruction to him at that point was to write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. So many commentators believe verse 19 of chapter 1 is kind of an outline of the book of Revelation. He's going to write about the things you've seen, the things which are present time, and the things which shall take place after the things or the future. So chapter 4 is a clear transition into the throne room of God from which John will view many of these things that will happen hereafter. The things to come will be shown, I think, starting in chapter 6. So chapters 4 and 5 are transitional before he shows them what's going to come in the future. But we find John in the Spirit in heaven, beholding the throne room of God and what goes on there. It's interesting to note, though, that the judgments, much of the terrible judgments we read in Revelation chapter 6 and onward, they proceed from this throne room. So not only is it a throne room of beauty and majesty and glory, it's a throne room of great authority from which these judgments that, you know, the rest of Revelation, which we won't be teaching through, uh, anyways, it is, uh, they proceed from this throne room. So back to our text. Verse 1. After these things I looked. behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, being the voice of chapter 1, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said... And here's the invitation of all invitations. Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Now, I think many of us would be terrified to see the future, to know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, it might be intimidating. But if you're invited to the throne room of God by the resurrected Christ, you don't say no. And here's the thing. Tonight, and not, not just tonight, but any night, we have the same invitation. I get to stand here hold it in my hands, read it over and over again to my family. I get to stand looking over the shoulder of John into the throne room of God. This is a privilege. This is a privilege of the church to see these things. And uh, as we heard in Psalm 119, I think verse 18 this morning, open my eyes. Lord, I want to see what you have revealed here about yourself. That should be our prayer tonight. Now look at verse 2. Immediately, I was in the Spirit. Now, John had already said in chapter 1 that he had been in the Spirit. So this was another experience of being in the Spirit as John comes to heaven. Now, some people debate about what it means he was in the Spirit. Where was his body? Was his body in heaven? Did just his spirit go to heaven? Was this just a vision? I don't know that it's possible for us to know. Um, Paul, when he had described his own heavenly experience, as recorded in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, he didn't know if he was in the body or not. So whether John truly knew whether he was in the body or not, had he been transported physically to heaven, all we know is that he said, immediately, I was in the spirit and behold. So he's seeing a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. So chapter uh, four, verse one is really the transition, the invitation. Chapter two is John entering to heaven and not chapter two, verse two. And then starting in verse three, we find to the remainder of the chapter, a description of the throne room of God, what it looks like and what goes on there. So let's pick up there in the uh, end of verse 2. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. We see the first thing that John notices is a throne. The throne is the center of attention. You'll see later in his description in the chapter that everything else he describes is in relation to the throne. So it's the center of attention. And then notice also he says, he who was sitting, he who is sitting. It's odd to think of the Almighty as sitting. We sit when we grow tired. God certainly never slumbers or sleeps, as he says in the Psalms. He does not grow weary. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. So why is he sitting Now, this may be my own speculation, but I think that God is sitting and resting in His supreme rule. He's not fighting and warring for rule. He's not threatened by anyone. He's resting in His absolute supremacy over all creation. He sits as Lord over all creation. It is also interesting to note, as we'll read here uh, further, but also it's been described to us, it says, "...he who is sitting... Was like so. It gives us a simile, a description, like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. But there's no description of God in regards to shape. It doesn't say what shape He was, or what size He was, or if He looks similar to any created being, like an animal or a person. But instead, the description here is pointing out glory and radiance. Now, maybe that was all God wanted him to see. Maybe that's all God wanted him to record. But that's what we have is the glory and the radiance of God as described sitting on the throne. It says there was a rainbow around the throne. Uh, it says, looking some things up here to see if somebody had speculation about this green hued or emerald appearance rainbow that's surrounding the throne. You see, hear all kinds of weird things, uh, but one that I thought was interesting. Uh, they, they talk about uh, when lightning flashes, sometimes you'll see almost a green flash of light. It, it's like they talk about the chemicals in the atmosphere. So maybe it's the power of the light giving off this green emerald appearance of a rainbow. I'm not quite sure, and I don't think that it's important for us to figure out where that green light was coming from, but we do, and what we should grasp is the importance that God is glorious and radiance in His appearance. It says also that around the throne were 24 thrones. So before the elders who were sitting on these 24 thrones catches John's eyes, he notices these 24 thrones that they sat on. And these, of course, were lesser thrones, as we will see that these men are worshiping uh, the one who sits on the throne. So these lesser thrones around the throne, and of course, we'll hear the song of worship at the end of the chapter. But the people that were sitting on them were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, and they had gold crowns on their head. The question would be, who are these 24 elders? Now, there's been some speculation that they are angelic beings, but I I believe they are actually glorified human beings. If you would uh, look forward with me to Revelation 5, just one chapter over, verses 9 and 10, where we hear another song. There is a song of the elders at the end of chapter 4, but the one in Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10, it says this, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God. With your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. I think based on their song, we can understand that these 24 elders are speaking as representatives of all of God's people, uh, of a great company of the redeemed saints of God. So that's initially what John sees as he enters heaven. He sees a throne, he sees the 24 elders sitting on the throne. And again, if you have speculation to what all the colors mean, the different lights, the, uh, the Sardis uh, stone, the emerald, uh, I will leave that for the scholars to dice out. I certainly can understand. I want to get to really the heart of what we're here for is to worship God, not to uh, you know, make speculation on some of the things, not that they're not important by any means, but I, I certainly could not answer you on all these uh, fine details here, such as what the clothing and white raiments mean, the golden crowns. People have all kinds of different ideas. But let's just stick to the main theme of the chapter, if we will, tonight. Now, starting in verse 5, we have an impressive and fearful sights surround the throne of God. Verse 5 says, Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. This is reminiscent, I think, of God's fearful presence on Mount Sinai. Uh, There's certainly awe associated with the throne of God. And then... There were seven lamps of fire before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And the Holy Spirit, as referred to in Revelation 1, 4 and Isaiah eleven two, is represented by these seven burning lamps. So we see the spirit of God. And then it says, and before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Again, people ask, is this sea really made of glass? Does it just look like glass? People are divided on this point. Some people say it's like the laver that was in front of the tabernacle. But Certainly, it's there bringing glory to God, uh, representing His glory in some way or fashion, and certainly um, is involved in the the worship, not as an inanimate object worshiping God, but bringing Him glory. But in the center and around the throne, we see in verse 6, There are four living creatures. Now, these guys get my attention a little bit more than the Sea of Crystal. While that is interesting, these four living creatures, it says they are full of eyes in front and behind. I did not want to take time. I'm sure we could do an entire exposition on these foreign living creatures because they are magnificent beings. But if you look back in your own time at Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 10, you'll see similar descriptions. Uh, we understand these creatures to be cherubims, angelic beings who surround the throne of God. Uh, Ezekiel 28 seems to indicate that even Satan or Lucifer, before he fell, was one of the highest angelic beings, maybe very similar to these cherubims or... Um, and living creatures as described here in Revelation 4. These were always prominent in the worship of God. In the tabernacle, cherubims were intricate into the design um, over the Ark of the Covenant and in other places around the temple. So certainly their presence is always directed to worship. It says that they were full of eyes in front and behind, each one of them having six wings. Certainly impressive creatures. Um, I think I don't think any of us would argue the fact that angelic beings are wise and intelligent. We see this throughout the scripture in their interactions with men. And these ones, maybe the eyes, are meaning that they have great insight. They're certainly not blind. They know and they understand. They see God, if anything, with those eyes. They are beings of intelligence and understanding, and they live and exist to worship God. One man said that all failure to worship God is simply a lack of seeing and understanding. Because if we saw God as He really is, we would worship Him as He truly deserves or or as much as, or more than we do now. So if we're we're lacking in our worship in our day-to-day lives, maybe it's because we don't truly see Him and understand Him. And that's why we must continue to drive ourselves back to Scripture to behold His face so that we might understand Him, see Him, and worship Him. Now, it says that one was like a lion— and one was like a calf, and one looked like the face of a man, and one like a flying eagle. So John describes these cherubims each with a different face, and uh, once again, um, there's all kinds of speculation. Some people say, oh, these four faces mean the primary virtues of love and honesty, and some people say it's Israel encamped around the uh, the tabernacle in the wilderness, or it's Jesus as presented in the four gospels. So don't get distracted by that. I, I I don't have the answer for you. I apologize. Stephen or Mark can help us out with that afterwards, what the four faces mean. Um, But certainly, I think we can agree on this. They represent magnificent creatures as created by God. They they represent some of the pinnacle, if not, not above man, because man is made in God's image, but the pinnacle of His creation as far as beauty and greatness. Uh, Maybe they represent all animate creation. The one thing I think we can also gather is that these amazing creatures who are in the throne room of God, there is no place for them to exalt themselves. You see that they worship God. You might think because they're so beautiful, they're so magnificent, they're so powerful and intelligent, they would say, look at me, look at me. But no, they're saying, look at God. So again, what they signify isn't Completely clear to me, but I do know that these amazing creatures who are part of God's amazing creation recognize that He is Lord over all and deserves worship. Now, not only does John describe what it looks like, he begins to describe what actually happens around the throne and what is said around the throne. And also interesting to note, we don't hear any speech from the throne. He doesn't need to speak. His presence alone speaks enough. The response is compelled out of those around the throne. The the 24 elders, the foreign living creatures, we're going to hear them cry out uh, as compelled by the presence of God. In verse 8, it says, They do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. The living creatures constantly worship God. Now, it's interesting, the choice of words, it says they do not cease to say. It doesn't say they repeatedly say, or that a lot of times they said this, but it's said that they do not cease to say. It leaves no room for the assumption that there's a break in what they say. The text does not say the living creatures began to say, but rather the language of the text seems to indicate that there's a perpetual occupation. They don't cease to do it. This is their ongoing occupation. I tend to imagine that this is what they were created specifically to do. I think that's our understanding of cherubim in Scripture. And I tend to imagine they've been doing this since creation and that they're doing it now and that they will do it for all eternity. Now, maybe uh, your thoughts of heaven and these whole things, uh, you know, at one point were like my son Luke. I was talking to him about heaven and he said, that sounds boring. Just flying around, singing all the time. I don't like that, God. Or not God, Dad. I don't like that, Dad. I don't like the idea of that. And children often have this misunderstanding of heaven. They imagine that it's simply floating around in the clouds, playing harps, singing songs to God. Therefore, when they hear something like this, it really doesn't seem like much of an improvement. Um, From their perspective, life is enjoyable when they're out playing or when they're being entertained. Therefore, the idea of worshiping God forever seems unreasonably boring to them. So why on earth... Would grown-ups think that heaven is an improvement upon this life, if all we're going to be doing is worshiping God. That's, that was my son's honest perspective. And I, I sympathize with him because as a child, I had the same misconceptions. And now as an adult, I understand two things. Don't understand a lot, but I do understand these two things. One, in heaven, we're going to do more than just worship in the throne room of God. We'll be serving in the kingdom, which is a form of worship. It is all worship toward God. So I do understand that. So I get it. We're not just standing in one place doing the same thing for all eternity. But here's the other thing I begin to understand, that when we see God as he truly is, we will want nothing more than to worship him forever and ever Our want to is going to be changed. I mean, hopefully, if you're regenerate, you're born again, your want to is already changed. You want to worship Him forever and ever. But certainly in your glorified state, it's going to be intensified, free from the burden of sin. Therefore, it's not going to be like, oh, do I have to? It's I get to worship Him forever and ever. So they do not cease to say. They do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy. We... Recognize this, uh, hopefully from Isaiah chapter 6, as his vision of heaven had the same description of God. And as you've probably heard in Hebrew, the double repetition of a word adds great emphasis. If we said he was a very, very sinful man, it adds emphasis. But the rare threefold repetition in Hebrew designates the superlative, and it calls attention to the infinite holiness of God. It's just not great. It's beyond great, His holiness. Holiness indicates separation and difference from everything else. As a child, I always thought of holiness just as perfection, purity, lack of sin. But holiness is separation from everything else. Uh, One thing, and I don't know if this helps you, but um, it helped me. When the Israelites were sick in the wilderness, they didn't approach the tabernacle. Because I can go to buy some food, even if I'm not feeling well. I can go over somebody's house. If I'm not feeling well, obviously they might not like it. But the fact is they treated God's tabernacle different. He was holy. He was different than everything else common in their life. He was different. So they treated him different. And so when God is holy, he's not just perfect and pure. He is, but he is separate and unique and distinguished from everything else. God is the one person that's unlike every other person you know. The existence of God is the one concept that you can think about that actually existed prior to thought itself. You ever think that Before there was ever any thought of any created being, there was God. And so I can think about Him, but He's the only thing I can think about that existed before thought. He is the only self-existent one. He's different than everything I relate to. Everything I relate to in this life, time, speech, and thought, had a beginning, and yet He didn't. And He's... Forever there by his own power. He's the good one. We say God is good, but he's the only one he's good. He's separate and distinguished. If there's goodness in this world, it's because it proceeds and flows forth from him. He is distinct and different. He is holy. He is above. He is good. He's the great one. Is there any greatness that exists that did not derive from God? Everything flowed forth from God in his creative ability. He is the holy one. Distinct and different and above his creation, separate and high and pure and perfect and good and great. The text goes on to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. And just as we saw the threefold repetition of his holiness, we find two other threefold repetitions in a sense, Lord God Almighty. The text could have said, holy, holy is the Lord, Holy, holy, holy is God, or holy, holy, holy is the Almighty. But there's this emphasis, He is the Lord, God, the Almighty, emphasizing His infinite power and sovereignty that He is master over all. It emphasizes He who was and is and is to come, that He ruled in the eternity past, He's ruling presently now, and will reign forever. Speaking of time, what do we imagine the foreign living creatures are doing right now? What will they be doing tonight while we sleep? What will they be doing tomorrow while we go to work, while the world rushes on, while wars are fought, and while the rulers of this land make laws that offend God's holiness? While we busy ourselves with the concerns of this world, the four and living creatures exist to worship continually the King of all earthly kings and the Lord of all earthly lords. Now, I understand it's not sinful for us to go about our daily occupations, and they will the jobs will come in front of our eyes, and we're going to be doing our work. But let us seek to remain in a state of worship and recognize that everything we do should be done for the king. The living creatures certainly do, and they give him thanks. And we who know and have experienced grace, how much more greater should our thanks be? Because while these foreign living creatures are in the presence of God, they've never been redeemed. They've never been bought back from the slave market of sin. You and I, who are made in the image of God, committed treason, and yet experience grace, something they know very little of experientially. They look over and see what we experience, and yet they do not experience. So if their existence is to worship God, how much more should our existence be? Charles Spurgeon said it this way. Knowing angels should worship God should promote our worship also. Do we have any less reason to praise Him or thank Him? Do we sing as much as the birds do? Yet what have the birds to sing about compared with us? Do we sing as much as the angels do? Yet they were never redeemed by the blood of Christ. Birds of the air, shall you excel me? Angels, shall you exceed me? You have done so, but I intend to emulate you and day by day and night by night pour out my soul in sacred song. Certainly we should be a worshiping people. And John was given this privilege to look into the throne room, and we have been given this privilege of looking into the throne room. We, who again, committed treason against the holy God who made us. We who were enemies, as we sang this morning, are now called sons and daughters. What a privilege is this. We were created for worship, and we have been given every reason to worship. The text goes on to say, and when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. So kind of like a domino effect, the living creatures give glory and honor. And now the elders are going to fall down, not just in response to what the foreign living creatures, in response to God who sits on the throne, but we see a succession there. So they worship, then the 24 elders will worship. The 24 elders cast down their thrones before uh, the throne of God and recognize the worth, the worthiness, belongs to God and not to themselves. So it indicates they're not keeping back, not reserving glory for themselves, but giving it to the king. They, the redeemed of God, throw every achievement back at God, saying He is worthy to receive glory. One other quote from Spurgeon, if you will, tonight. He says, our text says that all cast their crowns before the Lord. Notice that there are no divided opinions in heaven. There is no secretarianism in parties, no schisms there. They are all in perfect harmony and sweet accord. What one does, all do. They cast their crowns without exception before the throne. I do not read aught of dissension. They were all unanimous in casting their crowns at Jesus' feet. They were all unanimous in glorifying God. It is hard to find a brother and sister this side of heaven that we agree with everything on. But to think that you and I, those the redeemed of God who are true believers in Christ, will be able to be in unanimous unity, there will be no more division. Over, to the church replace Israel? There'll be nothing dividing us. There'll be united worship before God, casting our crowns before Him. This will be our occupation. So what do the 24 elders then say? Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. The fact that God is creator gives him all right in every claim over everything. Just as the potter has rights and claims over the clay, God has rights and claims over us. And not only does he have claims over everything, but he has control over everything. And aren't we glad he does? Because if he did not control the fundamental elements of this universe, where would his sovereignty be? One man said if there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose totally free of God's sovereignty, then we'd have no guarantee that a single promise of God, whatever, be fulfilled. God is in control. It is not by our choice and our plan, but by his own. It says, because of your will, they existed. The 24 elders recognize this. They recognize what Paul wrote in Colossians one sixteen through 18. By the Spirit, he says, for by... Him, All things were created both in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together or consist. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place or preeminence in everything. They recognized this and found joy in this, that it is all about God. It all proceeds from God. It's all for Him. It's all for His glory. And the only joy in our life will come when we truly embrace this. Warring against this sovereign, this good, holy King is futile. Some closing thoughts as we wrap up tonight. I hope you've enjoyed just taking some time to drill down this passage and see God as He describes Himself. But what does it mean that He has created all things? I thought you would enjoy this. I came across it this week and inspired me to kind of continue on this theme. You created all things. What has God created? There are about 7 billion people in this world. The number of atoms in a typical person is roughly 7 octillion That's seven to 27 zeros after it, because typically when we think about God creating things, okay, he created the sky, the sea, the whales, me and you, the wood that we make our houses with, we get kind of generic. But let's drill down and think specifically. He didn't just make people, and there's a lot of us, 7 billion, and maybe some people estimate 14 billion in all of human history, but he made every fiber. And I'll say atoms because where can you stop? You stop at the electron, the nucleus, and the proton. Is that the smallest piece? Is, is, that's just how small we can see right now. Is that really what's the end of the microcosm of our physical universe? So let's just stick with the idea of atoms. The number of atoms in one person is seven octillion. That's seven with 27 zeros after it, numbers we can't even relate to. In the entire world, it is estimated that there are somewhere like 100 quindecillion atoms. Now, how numbers big is that number? Well, if each atom was the size of a millimeter, so every atom, they're much smaller than a millimeter, but let's just imagine they're a millimeter, and we were to line them up, how far would that stretch? That would stretch to the sun and back, and the sun's 93 million miles away, stretch to the sun and back 334 decillion times, and that's 334 followed by 33 zeros. The number of atoms in the observable universe is thought to be 10 to the 82nd power, so there is nothing that we can comprehend, which can be compared to the numbers on this scale. And God made every one of these atoms. And He not just make made them, He sustains them. He made all 14 or billion or so of us that have existed on this planet from the start, and He numbers the hairs on our head. How many times has your heart pumped since you walked in here tonight? We have no idea. We don't make it beat, but God does. He sustains us. He's the one who's telling each of your hearts to beat. He's programmed your DNA. And don't even get me started on DNA because when we understand that God gives us 2.5 billion heartbeats in our lifetime and we recognize who He is in Scripture, and we not that John understood about the heartbeats, but if you just back up and see the immensity that is our God, this way He relates to us little Two-second breaths as vapors, our lives. Why are we not worshiping all the time? Why do we ever get calloused and casual in the face of this God? How many breaths have we drawn since we came in here tonight? Do you know that he's going to give you 600 million on average breaths in your life? Each one of them is an act of grace. Grace. How great is the God who controls all of this? How indescribably glorious is He? How deserving of our praise, our lives, and our everything? And I will truly end with this. Who is this God? Who is He? Doesn't take much page turning to find out. If you would, look with me at Revelation 5. John continues to write. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book. Or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing, as if slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, And thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them. I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory in dominion, forever and ever. And the foreign living creatures kept saying, "Amen." And the elders fell down, and worshipped. If there's any doubt left in anyone's mind who this deity described in chapter four, who the one who sits upon the throne, I think chapter five answers it. And as we sing, in one of our songs this uh, evening, the doxology. We should praise God, the one from whom all blessings, all creation, all life flows into the one to whom all glory is due. The doxology just was a routine part of church life growing up, but it hit me one day that there's statements, I think, of direct address. We say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. So we're praising God, but then we say, praise Him, all creatures below or all creatures here below. So we're telling the creatures here below, praise Him. We're we're saying all creatures, praise Him. We're telling them what to do. It's an emphatic statement. And correct me if I'm wrong on the grammar, but we're telling them what to do. And then we say, praise Him above ye heavenly host. You heavenly host, praise Him. I feel like I should be saying keep on praising Him because they are praising Him. But I'm telling them, praise Him. Why? Why would I tell the foreign living creatures and the 24 elders to keep on praising Him? Why would I tell any of the angels what to do because they know what to do? because I have seen more of His glory. He created me for the glory of His grace, and I've beheld the glory of His grace. And it's so consumed our thoughts and our minds that we want to praise Him, and we want to tell everyone to praise Him. We say with David, oh, that men would praise the Lord for His goodness. And we say to even the host of heaven, praise Him, keep on praising Him, praise and worship His name. Praise who? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So if you would, join me. Uh, In closing tonight, by singing the doxology.